Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The Ballad of MC Hammer. The Ballad any MC Hammer fans out there uh, still from back in the day? A few people that are willing to admit it and some people that are still closeted, and that's fine, okay? I will tell you this. Uh, in, um, in 1991, when I was in junior high, like there was no bigger star than MC Hammer. He was like the biggest thing in the entire world. And uh, of course, that's not like confusing as to why when you think about he was coming at us with hits like Can't Touch This, okay? Too Legit to Quit, uh, Pumps and a Bump. I mean, come on, guys. These were the jams, uh, amazing. And he would sing him and perform him in his patented hammer pants, uh, which just made him look like a genie. Uh, and they were amazing, they were sparkling, he had incredible moves, but he was all over the place. In fact, uh, his debut album, Hammer Don't Hurt Him, uh, I technically it was Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him, but if you were like on the inside, you could just cut off the first half. And you guys understand what I'm talking about. Um, it was the first hip hop album to actually sell over 10 million copies. It was this massive sort of earth shaking thing when Hammer sort of rose to power. And he was everywhere. He was on Saturday morning. There was a Saturday morning cartoon starring MC Hammer uh, called Hammer Man, where he would basically solve crimes uh, and fight like social unrest with dance moves and understanding. And in some ways, that's kind of how I view what I do. You know what I mean? Um, so that's what my Twitter bio is gonna say from now on. I solve crimes through dance moves and understanding. And he was everywhere. And this is what I think is so interesting about looking back on that time period. In 1991, MC Hammer was making about $33 million a year with an estimated net worth of about $70 million. But by 1996, so just five years later, he'd lost it all and filed bankruptcy. Which sort of makes you wonder, like, what in the world happened? And I think two things really led to this. Number one, you could probably guess, is that he lived too extravagantly. Okay, and if you just do a Google dive on MC Hammer, you will just be amazed and mesmerized at all the stuff that he spent his money on. He spent $30 million on a home uh, that was this massive, like, palatial, and he bought it, and then he souped it up beyond that point, right? So he had to have solid gold gates, as you do, uh, Italian marble floors, he had a recording studio, a 33-seat theater, a baseball diamond, multiple tennis courts, two swimming pools, one that was shaped like hammer pants. That's how you do it right there, okay? 17 car garage. And then he outfitted the whole thing with very rare antique furniture. He also owned a stable. He had multiple thoroughbred racehorses, uh, one of which was actually featured in, I think, place like second or third in the Kentucky Derby. Um, he, he had, he like always was transported in style. He, he, had, he often drove around in uh, a couple different Lamborghinis, which he owned, because it was the 90s. So, I mean, if you didn't have a Lamborghini, what were you doing with your life, okay? 
And he, he also traveled in a private jet, which he owned, and two private helicopters, which he flew around with. He also had a fleet of limousines, which would take him around to different places. And I mean, just fascinating to see. He wanted the best of the best of everything. But what's interesting about it was he wasn't the only one that was enjoying these things that he was buying and utilizing. And this, in fact, I think brings us to the second reason that he went broke, which may surprise you, is that he gave too generously. And some of you are like, wait, is that even a real thing? Um, this is what he said in, a, in an interview in like, it was like 1995. He was quoted as saying like, I didn't just take the money and say, I wanna be a blessing to myself. I took the money and I employed people in my community. I had a payroll of 500,000 to a million dollars a month. And I gotta be honest, I actually really like this about him. I like about him that when he rose to stardom, he had this realization that he didn't get there all by himself, that there were a lot of people who invested into him and influenced him getting to where he was. And when he rose to the top, he wanted to take those people with him. And I think that's really noble. I think that's incredible. I think that's admirable. I think he also might've overdid it. He might've done a little too much. He might've gone a little too hard in that particular area. Um, you know, he had nearly 200 staff members that he was paying on a consistent basis. Most of them were just like friends and family. And he wasn't just paying their salaries. He was also paying for extravagant meals and cars and clothes and apartments. And a lot of these people, it was debatable whether or not they were actually staff. I mean, some of them had pretty out there jobs. There was one guy who's literally his official title was full-time umbrella holder. Wow. Like, that is a great job, if you can get it. You know what I mean? Phenomenal work, it's rare, uh, especially. And also, at this time, Hammer lived in California. So not a lot of rain here, typically. Um, but you got it, you never know. You gotta have that umbrella holder on call. And I think you could look at all this and say, okay, listen, if, if he would have just pulled back, right, on one or both of these things, it's quite probable that he would have a ton of money still to this day. And in hindsight, it seems like the, 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 the solution is really simple. And I think it's easy for us to do a lot of times when we look at other people's lives and we're just like, oh, this is what you could do. You could just arrange it this way and it would be so easy. But I think what makes it complicated is that when it comes to money, it really is hard to know where to draw what lines, especially in your, in your own life. I think a lot of people would probably agree on and be able to identify when someone is spending or using their money in a way that's like way over the line. A lot of us could look at that and be like, wow, that's a lot, that's too much. Maybe pull back just a little bit. Maybe you don't need the umbrella holder, you know what I mean? Maybe uh, don't gold plate the gates, you know what I mean? Maybe just gold plate some stuff that's gonna be in the house because people can steal those gates pretty easy and then you have to replace those golden gates. Maybe just let those be in heaven and not at your house, you know? Um, but what I think is also interesting is, even though most of us could agree on what is maybe way over the line, a lot of us probably wouldn't agree on where the line is or be able to identify like the moment where someone crosses the line where they're sort of doing too much or spending too much or being sort of frivolous. Like, I think when you sort of break down these two ideas, they start to get really fuzzy real quick. It, it doesn't end up being as easy as we want it to be. Like, who's to say what's too extravagant? 
Because in reality, what feels frivolous to one person feels foundational to another person. Because there's this subjective, aesthetic aspect to money. Like meaning different people have different personalities, preferences, and priorities. And what I've noticed, at least about my own life, and maybe this is just me, but I think it may not be, is that I am much better at accusing others of extravagance than acknowledging it in myself. Have you noticed this? That it's so easy to look at somebody else's life and be like, they should not be doing that. That is too much. Their thing is extravagant. My thing is essential, okay? So don't you judge me, okay? Because what I need the things that I'm doing. And I wonder if anybody else does this. Maybe not even publicly or out loud, but like in the secrecy of your own heart. You look at what someone else is doing and you're just like, that is too extravagant. I can't believe they're doing that. They should not be using the money on that. Like, do you really need to take that exotic of a vacation, okay? I mean, couldn't you just go somewhere like more local, less expensive? You know what I mean? That seems, that's a lot, okay? I looked up how much that vacation would probably cost when I saw your Instagram pictures, and it feels like too much, okay? I mean, I don't, doesn't the car you already have, doesn't it work? Why do you need to get a new one? Why do you need to get the model for next year that hasn't even come out yet? Why do you need that thing? Like, why do you need, you know, one more pair of shoes, right? Um, let's, let's actually cross that one off. Um, I, I, that, that one, some of these make sense, right? This is my point, right? It's so easy when you look at somebody else's thing to be like, that is dumb. And then someone pinpoints your thing and you're like, no, no, but here's the thing, you don't understand. This is the way that we all are. Like it's so easy to identify it in other people but difficult to see in ourselves. Imagine someone like telling you that something that you really care a lot about and spend your money on is frivolous, and stupid and wasteful. Like, can't you feel that defensive anger rising up in you? Like, okay, uh, okay, wait a minute. You don't know me. You don't know my life, okay? You don't know where I came from. You don't know the field that I work in. You don't know what I have to do to stay competitive, like with the people around me to actually win over the people that I have to sell to or, or rub shoulders with. Like you, you don't really know, you don't know what I don't spend money on so that I can spend money on this. You don't know how hard I worked. You don't know how long I waited to get this. You don't know how much money I actually give away. It's interesting like how when someone suggests that maybe something is extravagant, how we are so quick to rush in and defend whatever it is we like spending money on. It's complicated. It's complicated because we all don't agree on what's extravagant and also we don't want to admit that anything we do is extravagant. So that's the first problem. And that's only half the problem because who's to say what is too generous? Because in reality, what feels generous to one person feels insignificant or even expected by another person. Like you could give something and it's possible that someone else would look at it and say like, oh, that's all you did? <laughs> that's nothing. Okay, in my family, right, if it, like that's the price of admission, okay? That's not generosity. We all were forced to go in on that gift. We had to do it. Like this is just what you have to do. I, I didn't get a choice. 
Like, if you don't kick in at least this much for the thing that we all are supposed to be doing together, then you don't care about us. And I think this brings up a lot of really interesting questions. Like, what if you don't have it to give? You know, what if, what if you're being taken advantage of by the same person that's coming to you again and again and again, and they're like leveraging your generosity to avoid actually having to take responsibility for their own story? What if your giving, like you give so much, what if your giving causes you to run out and then need to be given to? These are interesting questions because the bottom line is we all only have so much money and you have to divide it somehow. Decisions have to be made. And I think for a lot of us, when given the choice to you know, limit our lifestyle or limit our generosity, most of us are probably just gonna give less. But here's something that may surprise you, and you may have never heard this in church before. So it's a good time to just like write it down because it may never happen again, okay? I don't know where you're gonna end up, what churches you're gonna end up in later. The reality is God doesn't want you to overspend or overgive. Scripture actually encourages us to put healthy limits on both things. In fact, there is this passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is taking up an offering for people who are being persecuted and all their stuff is being taken and they, they need help just to survive um, through no fault of their own. And he talks about this idea really openly. This is one of the many places where it's unpacked. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. And this is what he says. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. Give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. And later, they'll have plenty and can share with you when you're in need. And this way, things will be equal. So what does this mean? What's actually going on here? I wanna unpack sort of what some of these phrases are actually talking about. He tells them to give according to what they have. In other words, don't give on credit because you're not really giving your money, you're giving somebody else's money. Isn't it interesting how generous we're willing to be with somebody else's stuff? Like my kids are super willing to be like, yeah, we, my dad would love to, to give that to you. I'm like, that's not your stuff, that's not your money, that's not your time, right? Um, some of you wives, you love volunteering your husband to do all sorts of things. He would love to do that with his free time, you know, because it's not my time, it's his. So like, yeah, I would love to give that away just freely. And this is saying like, listen, you're not expected to give something you don't have just to give what, out of what you do have. But the implication here is that some of what you have, no matter how much you have, is for giving away. And he talks about this idea of like, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, you should give so much that you make it easy for them, but hard for yourselves. And this is this concept of overgiving, right? Like don't like give so much of what you have away that you impoverish yourself in the process where you're like, oh man, they really need this, right? And so you sell your house and you give the money to that thing and now you're homeless and now you're going to the same place being like, hey guys, uh, can you give to me? And they're like, weren't you just in here writing a check? He's like, well, don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about here. 
He uses this word equality, which some of us, like, we, we grade on that word. It's like, I don't know about that. And this is meaning, like, in the basics. In other words, like, not everyone needs to live in the same type of home, but everyone should get to live indoors. This is what he's saying. It's not that, like, we need, everybody needs to get a cookie cutter and we should divide up all the money equally. But he's just saying, like, listen, there are people who literally have nothing, and we, we need to make sure that nobody among us is starving is in abusive situations, like has no opportunity for education, um, is sleeping on the streets because there's just nowhere for them to rest. Like that's the stuff that we need to remedy. And here's what's interesting. Passages like this that we don't often spend time talking about inside of church settings or from the pulpit, these are reasons why the ancient Jews had some parameters or boundaries on what they encouraged people to give. Ancient Jews were expected to give at least 10%. So that wasn't even an option in their culture. But unless they were enormously wealthy, they were discouraged from giving more than 20% of what they had. Because giving too much could actually cause you to become impoverished, not be able to help anyone else, and then be yourself the one in need. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wasn't there like a story where Jesus told someone to sell everything they had and give the money to the poor? Yeah, there actually is. So, so which is it? Like, are we supposed to be people that give extravagantly and are extravagantly generous? Or are we supposed to be people that are careful to not give ourselves needy in the process? And the answer is, Yes. Yes, we're supposed to do both things. Which is why I think a lot of people, especially in Christian circles, are really confused about what in the world they're supposed to be doing with their money. Because they read different passages like this, even things that Jesus said, and they're like, wait, that feels sort of contradictory. So what do I do with that? And if you think that's contradictory, let me just read you some other stuff in Scripture. This is a great, this is one of my fav most favorite contradictory things. This is even better because these two verses are next to each other. And it feels like they're saying the opposite thing. And there's a reason for that because they are. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. Listen to this. Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools or you will become as foolish as they are. Verse 5. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own estimation. Wait, what? Some of you have been like, like trying to tell all of your non-Christian friends, like they're like, the Bible contradicts this stuff, and you're like, no, it doesn't. And now you're just like, do not read Proverbs around these people. <laughs> so which is it? It's like, are we supposed to answer fools, or are we supposed to not answer fools? Yes, both. Well, which one? I mean, it depends on the situation. Depends on the setting. Honestly, it depends on the fool. <laughs> and you know this. You know this already, right? You know, like, certain fools, if you, if you lean in and say something, it's like, that. Well, I, I can help course correct them. You're like, man, if I answer this fool, they're just going to get more foolish, and we're all going to pay. And, and this pairing, part of the reason I bring this up, this pairing is an example of something called a paradox, and a paradox is like two seemingly opposing concepts that are both correct at the same time. 
And there are a lot of these in scripture. People not understanding what a paradox is or how they exist or how to leverage them in a wisdom tradition is I think a lot of the reason why people do not understand how to wield scripture correctly. Like, you know, in scripture it tells us to plan for the future. And then it also tells us to be present in the now. But which is it? Yeah, do those things. It tells us to serve others, especially when we don't feel like it. And then it also tells us to draw healthy boundaries and care for our own soul and learn how to say no frequently. So which is it? Yes. And I think it's stuff like this that makes those of us who are really black and white thinkers, it makes us feel like we're gonna have an aneurysm. In Jesus' name. And this truth, the existence of paradox inside of Scripture, inside of like the the things that God tells us to do and about himself and about us, is part of the reason why we've all sat in sermons where certain people, as they're listening to what's going on, are getting so angry and frustrated because of an experience they have that this seems to be insulting, and somebody next to them is crying, and they're just like, this is exactly what I needed right now. It's weird because... Everyone heard the same thing, and everything that was said was true. But the reality of it is, people usually don't care about what is principally truthful unless it's also personally applicable and beneficial. There are a lot of true things that we just sort of ignore and push aside because we're like, that's true. What does that have to do with me right now? I don't care. Like, let me just give you a true fact, okay? Jellyfish. If you are to get stung by a jellyfish and someone pees on you, it will actually make the pain worse. There's a myth that says that peeing on a jellyfish thing will actually take the pain away. It actually can infect the wound and the acid in the urine can actually sting and make things worse. Now at this moment in time, most of you are like interesting, don't really care that much. A little bit offended you said you're in a sermon, but I I get what you're trying to tell me right now. I don't really care. On the flip side, if you were on a beach right now and you had just gotten stung by a jellyfish and someone you really care about is trying to pee on you, (laughs) this information is so helpful. (laughs) And someday, one of you is gonna be in this situation. I don't know if you're in here, if you're online. Send me that email. Let me know. Because you're going to be in the situation like, I know what to do. I saw this on a movie. And you're like, no, no, no. Before you take your pants down, I want you to know. I heard in a sermon from a reputable source that this is a well-founded myth that just makes for great TV. Okay, so please do not do this. You know, knowledge is great, but, but wisdom is something different. It, it speaks to where I'm at right now, where I'm going, where I'm getting off track and where and how I can course correct. And this is ultimately what scripture is. It's a book of wisdom. And wisdom is the clarity and courage to know and do the right thing in the right context. Oftentimes, and this is like a way to sort of divide between these two categories, oftentimes knowledge looks like oversimplified black and white bits of information. But wisdom is full of nuance. It helps us navigate all of the gray of everyday life. 
it's what makes it so tricky, but it's also what makes it so valuable. It's also the reason that a lot of us, when we're looking for just like knowledge, we go to the internet. But when we want real wisdom about a situation, we wanna sit face to face with a person. Because we need help knowing how to apply the knowledge to our situation, knowing the right thing to do in the right moment right now. Which brings us to something very important to know, whether you're talking about economics or whether you're talking about um, anything really that scripture would bring up. You navigate a paradox because there's so many. You navigate a paradox by holding an opposing truth in each hand and walking the tightrope of tension in between. And in fact, um, this is such a big part of what it is to navigate scripture that ancient Jews had a practice to help them do this. Um, What they would do is they would take little scraps of paper and they would write an opposing idea or bit of wisdom on each piece of, of paper. And like, you know, because we're in a series about money and economics, maybe like one of them would be, you know, give extravagantly, great. And then another one, save cautiously. And they would take these things up and they would fold them up and they would put one in their left pocket and one in their right pocket. And the idea was that you let them sit there And you walk through life, and as you're journeying through life, attempting to follow Jesus and do the right thing and being a person of godly character, as you're walking that path, you're gonna notice that at times, focused on moving ahead, that you're starting to veer in one direction. And when you begin to veer off the path, pull out the piece of wisdom that will stop you from landing in the ditch on that side. Like when you find yourself like giving so much that you are starting to deplete everything and it's starting to get a dangerous place, like pull out the bit of wisdom that's like, save cautiously. Oh yeah. And you begin to course correct. You begin to sort of slide in the other way. And what can happen in life, right, is that because you're holding on to both things, you're walking and you begin to save and save and save and oversave and there's nothing that you would give to and there's no amount of generosity that you're interested in engaging with and then all of a sudden you, you find this in your pocket that reminds you to give extravagantly and you leverage this piece of wisdom. So which is it? It's both. Essentially, the way these people viewed this was Uh, bits of wisdom are like guardrails, safeguarding you from the ditch on either side because you're gonna need both. You're gonna need both things to walk the path in front of you well. You're gonna need them at different moments for different reasons. And so I I wanna sort of grab hold of this concept and tuck it into a particular context. Um, Something that we've sort of breezed over, read bits of before, and I wanna just apply this to this. Leviticus chapter 23 Verse 22. There's a couple of Old Testament verses here that we've mentioned about what people are supposed to do with their money. It's sort of the, the, over, the overarching um, economic instructions from God. Here's one piece of it. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. There's another verse along sort of similar lines. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 20. When you beat the olives from your trees, 
leave a portion for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. And when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't strip the branches bare. Leave some for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. And here's what I want you to notice about this. Maybe you caught this when we were reading it. Some portion, bare, edge. What do these words even mean? Right, these are not specific measurements. They're vague approximations. Which brings up the question of like, why didn't God just give these people an exact number? He could have, he chose not to. But here, instead of giving a percentage, God gives a principle. It's almost as if he wants his people to actively and ongoingly wrestle with the nuance of their number. Of like, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to give? What am I supposed to live open-handed with? And you get the sense from uh, all of the biblical writers that the goal that God has for us is to make our edge as big as we possibly can. But there's this, also this sense that you can make it too big, and that becomes problematic as well. I really think that MC Hammer was a good guy with a good heart who made the edge too big and it caused problems. And that's interesting, but in reality, most of us have the opposite problem. We're tempted to make our edge way too small. And maybe you're wondering, okay, wait a minute, like how big should my edge be right now? Like how big should the portion of what I give away and devote to God and others in my community. How big should that be versus the portion that I keep or utilize for myself? And I'll tell you, this is an excellent question. This is a spiritually deep question. This is the question that people who take faith seriously should be wrestling with on a regular basis. And I would also tell you that you're probably gonna need some help answering it. This is what rabbis did, by the way. They helped people understand like, what does this have to do with me now? How does this apply to me right now? In fact, every rabbi had an overarching philosophy of life that informed how they interpreted individual passages of scripture. And this is true for every ancient rabbi, which is essentially a traveling teacher who would interpret and explain how people apply scriptures. One of the most famous rabbis during the time of Jesus was named Rabbi Hillel, and when he was asked about his philosophy, he said this, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Jesus, when he was asked the same thing, because he's also a traveling rabbi, he says the inverse, like a phrase that you're familiar with, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for some of you, you're like, these sound like the exact same thing, but think about the, the focus of these. Hillel focuses on the evil that we ought to avoid, but Jesus focuses on the good we ought to pursue. One is about like, you know, um, what should I not do? And some of us, are, our entire lives are preoccupied with trying to figure out what we shouldn't do. And this is essentially the guidance that Hillel is giving, to stay away from things you shouldn't do. But Jesus has a different philosophy of life to the full. He's like, why don't, instead of obsessing over all the things you shouldn't do, why don't you make your focus and your interpretive lens like all the things that you should do 
in order to love other people well? What would that look like? Jesus teaches us to ask, what's the maximum I'm able to do, not what's the minimum I have to do? And if you look at every teaching of Jesus, it is filtered through this lens. What is the maximum I'm able to do is a very different question than what is the minimum I have to do. Jesus wants us to look at our neighbors and say, like, what can I do to best love you? And the answer varies, which is why in Scripture we're given advice on both scraps of paper. Because we need each at different moments in time. In, in, like in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus tells a guy to go and sell your possessions and give all the money to the poor. That sounds like extravagant generosity. That's what he's commanding here. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, you have the apostle Paul who is saying that those who don't care for their relatives financially have denied the true faith and are worse than outsiders. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That sounds a lot like saving cautiously because if you're not saving cautiously, something's gonna come up with your family and you're gonna not be able to actually take care of them. So which is it? Yes. What am I supposed to do? Whatever wisdom compels you to do in your context. Because here's the truth that if we don't wrestle with, we're gonna continually misunderstand scripture on every single topic. Being wise requires us to read scripture and also to read the situation. Because the scrap you use is dependent on the direction you're drifting in and what is necessary to bring you back on track. The answer may change, but the question remains the same. How big should my edge be right now? And that figure is not gonna be the same as everyone else's. It exists within a range, but there are parameters I think I can safely give you according to scripture. Like when you're looking at like what you have, your field, like there's a diagram here that the white line represents your field. How big is the edge? Like, according to scripture, it would be more than nothing. So I'll just let you know, like, if you're not giving any of your time, energy, and money away to your community through your local church, then you're definitely not doing it right. Secondly, according to scripture, what keeps coming back over and over again is that it's preferably above 10%. So there's like a, like a sort of a threshold that it wants us to get to. But then even beyond that, it tells us that we shouldn't be giving so much that we become a burden to other people. After you've reached the place of 10, push it up as high as you can without giving so much away that you, in return, become the needy one who needs somebody else's edge. And this means that like, the edge begins to shift. Like You can see like we've sketched out a couple different edges. This depends on... It's the same field, different edges, different seasons. To know how big to make your edge, in other words, you have to pay attention to a few different things. You've gotta pay attention to the size of your harvest. Like these ancient farmers have to actually go out and see how much they have before they know how much they can give away. For you, it's essentially your income. Like how much do I actually have? What am I bringing in? The second thing is like, you need to know and pay attention to the expenses of your household. 
Like, what, what does it actually cost for me to take care of the bare necessities of my current family? Like, what does that really cost us? Like, how much is that? The third thing is you need to pay attention to the needs of your community. Like, if you don't know, like, what the needs are in your local church, in your neighborhood, in the place that you live, you don't know what needs exist for you to actually give to. And sometimes knowing the need motivates you to give to the need. And also you need to pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit because there are moments in life in which we've been saving and saving and saving and the appearance of the other scrap of paper to give generously comes in a moment of the Holy Spirit saying, now is the time. This is what you were saving for. This is the moment. This is why I had you set that aside. This is the emergency I made you make an emergency fund for. You thought it was your emergency. It's theirs. And if we're not dialed into the Holy Spirit, we don't know when those moments are. If we don't know what we have, we have no idea if we have anything to give. If we don't know how much it costs to take care of the people that we're responsible for on a consistent basis, we don't know if we're robbing them in order to give to others. And there's a difference between inconveniencing your family and robbing them. Now, no matter what you do, when you diminish resources from your kids, they're gonna say robbing every time. That's FYI. And you need to know what's going on in your community. And this is an ongoing process. It requires you to be attentive and adjust according to the season that you're in. In other words, you're going to need to budget. And this is why on your way out today, we're gonna give you a budgeting worksheet. We also have an electronic copy of this we can send you as well we're gonna make available to download from our website. But like, this is essentially paying attention. Like if for you, it's not gonna look like going out and looking at your field because we don't have a lot of you know, wheat farmers here that go to our church. And sometimes when you sit down with your budget, it looks like, man, we gave 10% last year. Could we get to 11? What would we have to do? What would we have to cut or adjust or move around what would we, what could we live on less of so that we could in give a little bit more away to someone? Can we actually get there? How can we make our edge a little bit bigger during this season? And sometimes sitting down with your budget in this process looks like, man, we gave 14% last year, which was amazing. And here's what's real. There's a drought in my field this year. People are not buying. Houses are not selling. Our company's making cutbacks. There's a drought in the field. The harvest isn't what it was, which means the edge is going to have to be smaller. At the same time, I refuse to let it disappear because that's not who I wanna be. Sometimes when you budget, you realize as you're digging through expenses, like, oh no, I'm MC Hammer. <sighs> and sometimes we have the opposite reality. We're like, no, I'm Scrooge. Sometimes it's that like, you know, we are being too spendy and we didn't realize it until we look at the numbers. And sometimes we realize we're being too miserly. And I would say in that moment, you need the bit of wisdom that is going to course correct you to follow Jesus as effectively as you can. But I will tell you this, trusting God means purposely living on less. So I'm prepared to share what I've set aside. And this is why my challenge to all of you, regardless of where you're at, 
what your current field looks like at the moment to identify one area of your lifestyle that you could spend less on in order to grow your ability to give. And maybe that is giving currently. Maybe that is increasing your tithe. Maybe that's beginning to tithe. Maybe for you, it is setting money aside in a savings account and just waiting and listening to the Holy Spirit for a moment when you can let it go in someone else's direction. I don't know what it means for you. Because all I can do at this moment is give you knowledge in order to actually give you wisdom, I have to be able to read your situation along with scripture. And this is why we tell you, get in a group. Let other people in on your life. Talk about what is really happening in the real world in which you live in. Go to scripture, not looking for the one size fits all answer for every single person because what you're gonna find is a whole bunch of wisdom that says, yes, this book will tell you what to do after you tell it what you're going through, where you're at right now. And you're gonna need people around you to help you through that process. And that's what I wanna pray into your life today, that God would give you the courage every single season of life to sit down and look at what he's given to you and what he is asking you to do with what he's given to you and make a wise choice that honors God with everything you have. Would you bow your heads with me across this room as I just pray for us this morning? God, I am so incredibly grateful for all that you have given us, all the ways in which you have blessed us. God, we are incredibly grateful. And God, we are also thankful for your guidance. The fact that you know us, that you care about the intricacies of our stories and the fact that you want to give us your wisdom in order to move forward in our lives and follow you best. God, I pray that we would be extravagantly generous people. But God, we would be people who are always looking at what we have and how we can live open-handedly, wisely with everything you've entrusted to us. Every single season, may we ask ourselves the question, how big can I make my edge right now to love? Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.